Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word from Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 1. Galatians 4, 21 to 5, 1. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate, uh, desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's God's word for God's people today. You may be seated. And let's pray once again and ask for God's help. So, Father, we know we have nowhere else to go, for you alone have the words of life. So we pray you would feed us from your word this day. You'd plant your truth deep within us so we, may be, we might bear fruit for the glory of your name among our neighbors and the nations, we pray. Amen. I'm sure uh, we've all had someone at some point in our lives ask us, did you hear what I said? Maybe even today. My very loving, patient wife has to ask me that question far more often than she should. You know, I heard her words. I know it was English that was coming out of her mouth. But since I wasn't really listening, I didn't really hear. And I actually did hear it, but I heard without actually hearing. And our text today begins with Paul asking the Galatians if they heard what the law really says. Were you listening to the law, he asks. Did you hear what it actually says? Do you really understand what it teaches? No. The answer is no. They heard without actually hearing. And the law came to them after Paul's visit to Galatia as the false teachers, who are known as the Judaizers, uh, arrived after Paul left and told them that Paul's gospel had actually left out some very important things. Namely, that God saves sinners, not by faith alone in Jesus alone, but in addition to faith in Jesus, God demands sinners' obedience to the law to complete their justification. To truly be right with God, men must be circumcised and everyone else must follow the food laws and the Jewish festival calendars and everything else that the law demands. And so throughout this letter, Paul has so far argued that believing God saves sinners based on their activity or their ability actually does not make them sons of God. 
It actually makes you a slave, and it keeps you outside of God's promise and blessing. And so in our morning's verses, Paul shows again that this has always been what happens when sinners try to work for God's blessing, that God has always had salvation set up this way, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old as well. And that God has always saved sinners by making them his sons, not by works, but through faith in God's promise. Again, not through human activity or how fervent their devotion is, but by their faith in him. And so Paul uses Abraham as his prime example throughout Galatians because he was probably the Judaizer's prime example. They were most likely saying, if you aren't a son of Abraham, you aren't a true son of God. And so far, so good. But then they would say, and you aren't a son of Abraham unless you're under the law. Which means living as if the law is the way God determines our status before him. It's the way into God's family. The law is the way we stay in God's family. And the law is the way, at the end, we will ultimately inherit the blessing of God's promises. And so Paul confronts this false teaching of law reliance as a determining factor, as the basis, as the grounds of who a true son of God is in verse 21. He says, did you hear what the law really says? Did you hear it? Do you, do you know? And of course they didn't. And so he reminds them in verse 22 that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So again, Paul turns our attention back to Genesis to, the, to answer the argument of who is actually a true son of Abraham by telling the story of Abraham's two sons who were born through very different circumstances. In Genesis 12 and 15, God promised Abraham that he would have a son to live in the land that God showed him and who would be the heir of God's promises. And, but he and Sarah were very old, and Sarah had never been able to have children. And so in Genesis 16, after years and years of God's promise going unfulfilled, Sarah told Abraham to go into her servant Hagar so she could have children through her. And Abraham listened to his wife, and Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. Then 13 years later, in Genesis 17, God promised again that Abraham and Sarah would have a son. And Abraham, in that moment, fell on his face and laughed at this preposterous thought. He says, hey God, I know you know this, but I am super old, and so is my wife. It wasn't a very, it's, it wasn't a very kind moment there. He's laughing in God's face, and and telling God his wife is not young anymore. And so he says, God, what, what are you doing? Your plan is ridiculous. Here's Ishmael. May he live before you. Make him the son of promise. Well, God rejects that plan and reaffirms his promise that Sarah will be the mother of the promised son one year later. So then in Genesis 21, after Abraham's 100th birthday, God fulfilled his promise as he had visited Sarah, who then gave birth to Isaac, which makes old Abraham and barren Sarah the, the parents of the son of promise. That God finally fulfilled that promise that he made decades earlier, that a a Abraham would have a son through whom God would bless all the families of the earth. 
So that's verse 22. Paul kind of harkens back. These people had probably known this story, and so he didn't need to summarize it, but that's what verse 22 is getting at. And then verse 23 summarizes all this. He says, But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So then Abraham shows these two different strategies of how to bring about God's blessing, as these two sons were born through very different strategies. Sarah schemed up a plan to have a son, even though she was barren. She was going to make it happen through her servant. And Abraham listened to her. He thought that sounded pretty good to him. And so they attempted to bring about God's promises through human effort. In fact, when confronted years later, that's why, that's why Abraham asked God to make Ishmael the son of promise. He's like, God, your, your strategy is off. Here, I got a better one. But it's not. God rejects that. Because you can't bring about God's promises through our own efforts. And in fact, in Genesis, all human effort and strategy brought about was a son of slavery who not only didn't inherit the promise, he was cast out with Hagar after Isaac was born. And then years and years and years, millennia of strife had hatched in those moments. But in another example of God's amazing grace, in the face of human rebellion, our rebellious attempts to be God ourselves and take things into our own hands. What does God do? He doesn't reject them. He doesn't bring judgment in that moment. He reaffirms and then keeps a promise. God graciously keeps his promises. And so the long-awaited son was born, not of the flesh, and not by human effort or strategy, but only by God's divine power and grace. So God's promise of justification and blessing were not brought about through human ability or activity. That's Paul's point. In the face of this false teaching, you can't do it through human ability or activity. And just as Abraham wasn't justified by works, but by his faith in God's promise, so Abraham didn't gain his true heir through his own wisdom and effort. Isaac was born when God visited Sarah, when they were so far beyond the age of having children that no human effort or strategy could have made it happen. That's the point. No amount. No, you couldn't plan it. You couldn't work it. We couldn't try hard enough. There was no way to make it happen. The son of promise was only born when God providentially visited Sarah and gave her a son. While the son of slavery was born through human strategy and reliance on our own ability and activity. And the point Paul continues to make is that both these sons were sons of Abraham. They both were sons of Abraham, yet only one was born of promise, and he alone was the true heir. In other words, the only way you become a true son of Abraham is to rely upon God's gracious initiative and faithfulness. That's the only way to become a true son, not your own efforts. And this is glorious news, especially when we remember chapter 3 says, even if you tried to keep the law, you're going to be cursed because you can't do it. It's impossible. It's an impossible mountain to climb. All that way is curse. Even if you tried to make it on your own effort, you'd fail and end up cursed. So this is glorious news that becoming a true son of God takes as much human contribution as a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man contribute to having a baby. Now, I haven't been 100 years old, but I don't think it's possible. 
It's not. That's the whole point. And that's what Genesis tells us. It's impossible. Genesis uses some not-so-Sunday-morning language to, to describe both Abraham and Sarah's physical ability to engage each other in having a child. It's humanly impossible. And so just as only God's visiting led Sarah to having a son, so only those who rely upon God's promise are true and free sons. And on the flip side, anyone who relies on their own ability and activity is still a son of slavery, still enslaved to sin and death. And brothers and sisters, the choice of who to rely upon is just as real today as it was in Galatia and in Genesis. We're tempted to regularly choose our own power rather than God's. We regularly face the choice to either live on God's power and promises or to live on our own efforts and strategies. Now, how often do we base our assurance of our salvation on how hard we've been trying lately, on how much we've been reading, on how much we've been praying, on how often we've been in this room, or how often we've been trying to think about God, or how much we didn't willfully sin this past week? You're like, I'm doing pretty good this week. But that just reveals our faith is in a false gospel of works, not of grace. And it really is a question of faith. You see, when Abraham went into Hagar and conceived Ishmael, it was not that they didn't have faith. They had lots of faith. It was just in themselves. It was in their plan. It was in their effort to bring about God's blessing. It was in their strategy. It's not that they didn't have faith. It's that their actions revealed their faith wasn't in God alone. And so Paul confronts us with the question, who is your only hope? your only hope. And the answer of the true sons of Abraham isn't just Jesus. This is one of the times that the Sunday school answer doesn't work. Almost every time I was in Sunday school, the answer is Jesus. But this time it's not. It's not just Jesus. It's Jesus alone. That's our only hope. The Judaizers were fine with Jesus. They just were not fine with Jesus alone. They didn't reject faith or Jesus. They just rejected that God saves sinners by faith alone and Jesus alone. They're like, yeah, we like Jesus. He's great. He's very essential. But the way to God includes faith in your works of the law. And so that's why Paul brings up the story of Abraham's two sons to teach us that the path of self-reliance is actually the path away from God into slavery and death. And that the only path to life is to rely upon God's power and his faithfulness. And so Paul continues to prove this point in verses 24 to 27, when he shifts from the two sons to their two mothers. He shifts from the two sons to their two mothers. He says, now this can be interpreted allegorically, and he goes on to then show the difference between the covenants of grace and law. And he begins with Hagar and her children of slavery. Now these, according to his um, story in, Genesis, or in, chap, in verses 22 to 23, are Hagar and her children of slavery, who are those who live according to human effort and striving in order to bring about God's blessing. If you just do enough, try enough, mean well enough, you can bring it about. And so Paul connects Hagar and her descendants to Mount Sinai, which is really a shocking move. It's not very shocking to us, but it would have been back then. Because Sinai is where God met Israel, not Ishmael and his children, and his sons. It's where God met Israel and gave them the law. 
Hagar and Ishmael had been cast out. They didn't have the law. Jerusalem wasn't their home. Yet Paul connects them to Sinai and the present-day Jerusalem, which means everyone who devotes themselves to law-keeping as a way to receive God's blessing are actually not true sons of God. They're sons of slavery. They may be biological sons of Sarah, but they're spiritually, truly sons of Hagar, for they strive to keep the law as the way to receive God's blessing. So putting yourself under the law to produce your salvation is like the strategy to gain God's promise by producing a son through Hagar. As wise as it may seem in the moment, as unfulfilled as God's promises were in those moments, doubting as you might God's power to bring about his promises when everything, including everything within you, is like, there is no way this can happen. Putting yourself under the law to produce your salvation won't bring blessing. It just brings curse and slavery. And so Paul's saying Jerusalem and its people have Hagar and not Sarah as their mother, not just would have shocked them, would have angered them. They probably would have picked up stones to stone Paul. I mean, put yourself in their place and consider how you take the news that the person you called your mom your entire life turned out to not be your true mom. The Jews were very, very tied to their ethnic heritage. It was very important to them because they thought that it was through their ethnicity that God would save them. And so to upend everything, their whole belief system, wouldn't have just shocked them, would have angered them. Their whole identity was being Sarah, or having Sarah as their mother, having Abraham as their father. So Jesus teaches through, or uh, confronts throughout uh, the New Testament with the Pharisees. It's like, if God doesn't need you, if he, if he wanted sons, he'd raise them up from rocks. That, that's, that's the anger that would shock them. They're like, no, we are sons because of who our parents were. But Paul is upending that in the stream of Jesus because you're actually sons of Hagar when you live like this. For striving to keep the law as the way to receive God's blessing is actually slavery. And so he confronts their true mother. Now this past week marked the one-year anniversary of my mom's death. And she was a great mom. And she taught me much about Jesus. And I praise God for her. And so, yes, we've grieved, but not without hope. Because not only do I have a truer mother, so did my mom. She had a truer mother. She was a son of promise by faith alone in Jesus alone. And so I can praise God for my earthly mother. But who my true mother is matters more than earthly mothers. Because true sons of God aren't born through human ability or activity. The false teachers claim Sarah and Abraham as their parents, and that's true biologically. And yet Paul says their true mother is Hagar, because like Ishmael, they may share Abraham's DNA, but they're actually Hagar's children because they don't share Abraham's faith. DNA or activity or ability will not save you. It's faith alone in Jesus alone that saves And so if you rely upon your own effort as the basis of your relationship with God, 
If you think justification in God's sight comes through your striving and your obedience, even a little part of it, then Hagar is your mother. And you're not a son, you're a slave. And I, I, this is a difficult section. Uh, many say it's one of the most difficult sections in the New Testament. It's definitely the most difficult section in Galatia or Galatians. And it might seem like this is really good Sunday morning sermon material with some good nuggets that probably people like me and maybe some of you like and causes us to go, mm-hmm, hey, yeah. But what's this got to do with anything on a Tuesday afternoon? Well, if you think anything you do has anything to do with your justification, then you're not a Christian. If you think you have anything to do with how God saves sinners, then you're not a Christian. You might be very moral. You might be very nice. You might know a lot about the Bible. The problem is that was true about the Judaizers. But they weren't true sons. For a person is not justified by works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And only those who turn to Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and the fulfillment of every one of God's promises are free from sin. And only those who are free from sin through that faith in Jesus will receive all the blessing of God's promises. And only those of faith can claim Sarah as their true mother and the Jerusalem above that's free as their true home. And we should desire this. That's why Paul's holding it out. Remember verse 22? Paul uses the word desire. You, you who desire to be under the law. He's, he's not attacking the desire. It's a good desire. The reason why they're considering the law is a good desire. The false teachers had stoked their fear of being left out of God's blessing. They don't want to be left out of God's blessing. They want to be true sons of Abraham. But Paul says, you want to be true sons of Abraham? That's a good desire. It's a great desire. But taking on the law will only ensure that you'll be outside of God's blessing. The answer is not the law. The way to quench your desire is Jesus. And so in verse 27, he shows we do that by rejoicing daily in God's power, not in our human ability. To rejoice in God's power daily, not human ability. He quotes Isaiah 54, 1. He says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. You see again how in the midst of such barrenness and tragedy and death can you rejoice? Well, only by faith. Not in our ability to do anything about the situation we're in, but in God's ability. He says, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And so when Isaiah wrote this prophecy, the Jewish people were scattered among the nations, and Jerusalem was like a barren mother. They, they, they had no hope, how, uh, no hope that God would bring about those purposes from what they could see. Everything they saw was death and barrenness. But Isaiah makes this prophecy, because just as God did in Abraham and Sarah for Isaac, he would do again to bring life out of death and barrenness. That's our God. In spite of our rejection of him, in, in spite of the sin that brought on those consequences, in spite of the fact that we're so faithless often in his promises, he graciously continues to keep them for the glory of his name. He says, God's going to do it, not you. 
God prophesied long ago that Sarah's true children will one day outnumber Hagar's children. And God was fulfilling this promise in the Galatians, when those who were outside of God's promises were being brought in. The one who was barren is going to have more true sons than the sons of, of Hagar, as they, all by God's grace through faith, became children of promise with Sarah as their mother. And so the children of the desolate one were becoming more than those of the slave women. And again, all by God's initiative and grace. And so what, what do you spend your days rejoicing in, hoping in, looking for, brothers and sisters? And when we don't spend time rejoicing in God's saving power, we'll inevitably spend our time strategizing how to live from our own power. When we're faced with difficulties and circumstances that, that threaten our hope, if we don't daily rejoice in God's power, we'll, we'll start to spend our time strategizing how we're going to take things into our own hands, how, how I can work this out, rather than waiting for God to work it out. And ultimately, God is at work not to make your plans always come to fruition the way you want. God is at work among our neighbors and the nations today so that he will have more children of promise and that they will outnumber the children of slavery. Isn't that not amazing? That God's at work today to do this? And he does it by faith in Jesus? And that one day the Jerusalem above, as we've already sung about this morning, will come down to earth and will be filled forever with the rejoicing of those who belong to it? That those whose faith alone is in Jesus Christ alone will forever worship God face to face? They will rejoice in that day that in spite of all that they did, and in spite of all that they did not do, and in spite of all that they could not do, God did it. That he set us free from sin and death through faith alone in Jesus. So that's why Paul brings up this, this allegory and these two the story of two sons uh, from Genesis, that freedom from sin and death will never be brought about by human ability or activity. In fact, it cannot. It only furthers the separation and the curse and the slavery. But in Christ alone, by faith alone, we are set free. And so we have two applications in closing that Paul gives in verses 28 through 5.1. The first is know who you are. Know who you are. Paul gives us a, f a family lineage narrative because he wants you to know who you really are. It's actually when we forget who we really are that all the problems start coming about. That's what happened in Galatia. Even in the face of this fear, they forgot who they were. Look at verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. That's pretty shocking, I think, for, for the moment, isn't it? I mean, how, how unfaithful had the Galatians been acting? How wishy-washy had they really been? He's called them fools. He's actually said, you're turning from, from the gospel. There's actually a lot of question throughout Galatia if they really are believers. But he says, I was there in those moments. I saw it happen. I, I preached Jesus to you. He was placarded before you. I saw the Holy Spirit make you alive in Jesus. He brought you from death to life. I saw it. You are. You are. Not because of anything you've done, but you are through promise. So when Paul came preaching Jesus, the Spirit made them alive and gave them faith in Jesus. They didn't do anything. God did it. 
He says you are sons of promise. You already are what the false teachers say you're not. Know who you are. Everything they say you don't have is, in fact, already yours in Jesus. And so that, brothers and sisters, is what defines us. That's what defines our status before God. It's not our performance. It's not our obedience or any lack of performance or obedience. By faith, what is true of Christ is true of you. By faith. What is true of Jesus is true of those whose faith is in Jesus. And so the righteousness God demands for justification, which we sinners lack, it becomes truly ours by faith because Jesus completely kept the law. It was not the impossible mountain for him to climb. He needed to climb it in order to save us. And so when he did, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that those with faith in Jesus might become righteous in Jesus. And this is actually why we sing that new song, All Sufficient Merit. God demands righteousness for life, and sin deserves death. But the question then is, how will God save sinners, yet still be holy and just? And the answer is Jesus. All sufficient merit, shining like the sun. A fortune I inherit by no work I have done. My righteousness I forfeit at my Savior's cross where all sufficient merit did what I could not. Now I know the word merit can make doctrine of grace people like us a little queasy. At any hint of works righteousness, our ears perk up and we, we're ready to fight. And that's, that's good in some ways, right? But justification is God's verdict of sinners being not only declared not guilty, but also righteous. We're not just declared not guilty, we're declared righteous. And this song strongly teaches the Reformed doctrine of justification. Because we often forget that God declares us not just not guilty, but righteous. We often forget that last part. Justification isn't only God declaring sinners not guilty. That's actually Roman Catholic dogma. That, sure, Jesus is essential. He's where you get the slate wiped clean. That's what it is. And now you have to do things to merit the righteousness needed to enter eternal life. That sounds eerily similar to the Judaizers, doesn't it? That Jesus is essential, but what you need is a little bit more of you to finish it off. And Paul says anathema. That curse. Curse that gospel and anyone who preaches it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not just that your slate was wiped clean and now you got to keep it clean. And the way to do that is by you working it, earning it, meriting it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God graciously declares sinners righteous by faith alone in Jesus alone so that he gets all the glory alone. We forfeit all our merit, good and bad, because no one will be justified by their works. And so by faith, we inherit the fortune of Jesus' all-sufficient merit. We need to be righteous. We don't have it on our own. 
We must have righteousness. And the righteousness God demands for justification isn't outside of us. It's not kind of ours. It's not, it's, it's not fake ours. It actually truly is ours when the Spirit unites us to Jesus by faith. It becomes truly ours. That's why we sing it. That's why we can rejoice that what I do not have, I have in Jesus. And there's no slate to keep clean anymore then. There's no slate to keep clean. It doesn't mean there's not things to do. There is, which, which in this transition, then Paul turns and starts to talk about in chapters 5 and 6. But we don't work to keep the slate clean. We work from the righteousness and life we have in Jesus. And so that's why verse 31 says, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So brothers and sisters, we fight this temptation to go back to works righteousness by knowing who we are. But this does not come without difficulty. It actually comes with persecution, as Paul then secondly says, to stand firm. Know who you are and stand firm. Look at verse uh, 1 in chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. <clears throat> Excuse me just a second. <clears throat> we see two ways uh, we can stand firm from Galatians 5, verse 1. Two ways. First, we cast out. First, cast out. That's how we stand firm. There is actually something to do. Uh, standing, standing sounds like we're not doing anything, but there is actually things to do. The first one is which to cast out. We cast out everything and anyone that leads you to self-reliance. Uh, Galatians 5.1 is a transitional verse. Uh, it can go uh, with the end of chapter 4. It also is the intro to chapter 5. Uh, but it does conclude Paul's thought in this allegory and in his story to the two sons of Abraham. And so that it also kicks off chapter 5. We're going to look at it more in depth next week, Lord willing. But for now, uh, stand firm is the conclusion to chapter 4, verses 29 and 30 where Paul points back again to Genesis, this time chapter 21. And he says, when uh, Isaac was weaned, they found Hagar and Ishmael laughing at him. And so Sarah tells Abraham to cast them out. And Paul points back to this story, to this time of persecution that Sarah and Isaac endured, and says what happened then still happens today. That the enslaved people, those who work according to their own effort, ability, and strategy to bring about God's blessing, actually persecute the free. They actually work hard to take our freedom away. And so how do we handle it? Paul quotes Genesis 21 verse 10 in verse 30 and says, cast them out. He says to kick out the Judaizers. Cast them away from your presence. They're keeping you. They're troubling you. They're leading you astray. So cast them out because they're not going to inherit the promise. And actually, it's a grace to cast out those, to keep them at bay to not follow them. Sometimes God judges, and it's a means of grace to them so that they will turn. But Paul says they're not going to inherit the promise, humanly speaking, if they stay in their sins, so cast them out. Don't get tangled up with people who lead you away from the life of grace. 
and will lead you into slavery and death. We call it out. We cast it out. And we stand firm. For false gospels are truly a matter of life and death, brothers and sisters. That's why he says to keep clear of it as far away as possible. The moment we, we sniff works, cast it out. So in the face of false gospels, remind yourself of the true gospel. And rejoice, as Paul taught us through uh, Isaiah 54 and verse 27. Rejoice in the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is ours freely, all because of God's grace to us and his great love for us. And that actually leads to the second way we stand firm. We not only cast out, we cast out as we hope in Christ alone. We can't just keep things at bay. We must, we must hold on to Christ. We must hope in Christ alone. Uh, have you ever tried to stand firm? Have you ever tried to stand firm and have someone like shove you or hit you? Have you ever done that little like, uh, uh, what do you call it, those uh, little activities in a group where you try to, you know, sometimes you fall back and you hope everyone catches you. There's other times where you, where you do these activities to try and build up your team building. Well, have you ever not been standing firm and you weren't ready for it and someone knocked into you and you kind of spun around, maybe even got knocked down? Well, I think the reason why Paul doesn't just say stand, but stand firm, is because standing firm isn't the same as standing still. When we hear stand, we, we, we might hear a passive verb. But standing firm is not passive at all. It's planting your feet so that you're immovable, so that no matter what comes your way, you're not knocked around. Which means standing firm here in Galatians 5 is putting all your hope in Christ so that you are immovable. So immovable that no amount of fear-stoking or clever arguments could get you to move off Jesus Christ. That's why Paul wraps up the story with standing firm. He said, you're desiring to go under the law for life, and that desire for life is a good thing, but stand firm in Jesus. Don't let anything move you off of Jesus. And to do that, we must first know who we are, for it's as we live from our identity as free in Jesus and we know we're free in Jesus, and everything that's true of him is already true of us, it's then we're equipped to stand firm in the face of temptation, to turn away from Christ, to false gospels that will only bring slavery and death. Stand firm. Rejoice. Preach the gospel to yourself that in spite of all that you've done and in spite of all that you could not do, God did. Stand firm in the freedom you have in Jesus. And so as we close, friends, if Christ isn't your hope, what is? We all have faith, just like Abraham and Sarah in those moments had faith to take it into their own hands. What is your hope? Is it you? If it's anything other than Jesus, turn to him in repentance and sin and faith, for he alone is the only hope for life. And brothers and sisters, let's rejoice that the long-awaited son in Genesis was just a shadow of the true son of promise. Jesus Christ, who was born not of the flesh, not of human strategy, but all because of God's divine power and grace. He came in love to serve his people through his life, death, and resurrection. 
And because he now reigns on high, we can stand firm. Our king reigns. Stand firm in him and know that he's coming soon again. And all those who by grace, who are standing firm in faith in him, will see his face. And on that moment, and that day, we will then forever rejoice in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come amazed at your grace to us in spite of our tendency to self-reliance and pride, in spite of our natural inclination to think we have to do, in spite of the ways we want that to be true so that we can get some of the glory. We praise you for your grace to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would turn us more and more into people who rejoice daily in your power and to preach the freedom we have in Jesus and to live it out, to never submit to a yoke of slavery, but to stand firm in Jesus Christ. We praise you that who we were is no longer who we are. And we pray for the glory of your name among our neighbors and the nations. You would help us to stand firm in the freedom we have in Jesus. And it's for your glory. In your name alone we pray.